when you are feeling worried or stressed, when you need some relief in the midst of suffering, where do you find comfort? So there's a a whole culinary genre called comfort food. Uh, My go-to comfort food would be pizza, duh. Right after that, Mexican. Right after that, pizza, and then Mexican again. Maybe yours is southern fried chicken or pot roast with mashed potatoes and gravy. I don't know, but comfort can be found in food. Of course, then there's comfort clothes, your favorite clothes that just make you feel so comfortable. My wife hates my comfort clothes. It's my favorite hoodie and sweatpants. And every time she sees me in it, which is pretty much every morning, she's like, oh, can't we just throw those away? (laughs) Maybe you find comfort in a place. So on a regular basis, that's my front porch. Or for me, going on a walk. Um, The third battlefield, Winchester. Blandy, downtown, number of places. I suppose if I could pick one place in the whole world to be for a comfort place, I love you all, but it would probably be with my family on the beach. I don't know. How about you? Where's your comfort zone, your comfort place? And of course, there's comfort music. I don't know what yours is, but mine's definitely James Taylor and anything acoustic 70s folk. And then there are comfort pets. I don't have one, don't want one. Piper is not my comfort pet. She causes me discomfort all the time. Nice little dog, but she is not my emotional support animal. Maybe you have an emotional support animal. I was walking in Old Town yesterday and saw a sign outside of a toy shop that said uh, emotional support chickens for sale. There you go. Where do you find comfort? We go all kinds of places, don't we? And, And it's when we experience things like sickness or maybe we're grieving over loss or something as serious as death. We need comfort in these deep, dark times of of fear and of stress when you're just overwhelmed at work or the kids are just driving you batty or whatever it is, finances or relationships that are just causing you all kinds of stress. We often run for comfort to these kinds of places. So what if you were held in captivity by a foreign government. What would bring you comfort there? That's actually where we find God's people in Isaiah 40, our sermon text for today. I'd invite you to turn with me there, please. Isaiah chapter 40. We're making a turn in the book. First half is over. We're now turning into the second half of Isaiah. In chapter 1 through 39, the Lord has been confronting Judah with their sin and 
the entire time for 39 chapters, he has told them that they will be judged for their sin by a foreign nation. And the natural assumption of chapter 1 through 39 is that the foreign nation who is going to judge Judah for their unfaithfulness to the Lord is Assyria, the superpower to the east and to the north. And and it's a natural assumption because not only are they the superpower in the world at the time, but in 722, they came down and they did conquer Israel to the north. And they did take Israel into captivity. And here sits little Judah in the capital of Jerusalem and King Hezekiah. And they're, they're just shaking their boots because they know that Assyria is probably the ones whom God is going to use to judge them for their wickedness as well. And frankly, they deserve it. They know they deserve it. Not that the prophet has, is right. But then in chapter 36 and 37, do you remember Assyria, the superpower, was camped outside of Jerusalem and good King Hezekiah prayed and the Lord delivered them from Assyria. And then in chapter 38 and 39 that we looked at last week, the Lord revealed that just like King Hezekiah had been granted a temporary reprieve from death. Judah was also being given a temporary reprieve from judgment. Their judgment was not coming through Assyria. We ended chapter 39 and learned that because of the sin of the nation and because of the sin and unfaithfulness of good King Hezekiah, Judgment was coming from Babylon. Babylon wasn't even a superpower yet. About 105 years later, Babylon did come and conquer Judah and carry the people into captivity. So just try to put yourself in their sandals for just a moment. Imagine an enemy nation, some superpower on earth. For for us, maybe some massive nation like China with all of their power, economic, military. They actually conquer our country. And they airlift hundreds and hundreds of thousands of us over to their country and we live in labor camps, and we do forced labor in their sweatshops. Just imagine that for a minute. You don't live in Winchester anymore. You don't live in your house. You and your children live in a concentration labor camp, and you work like slaves in a sweatshop. That sounds absurd to us, doesn't it? Well, that really just reveals the utopic conditions that we live in. That something like that sounds absurd to us. 
because that sort of thing didn't just happen in the Bible. That sort of thing happens throughout history over and over and over again to nations and peoples. And we could just go throughout history and name many of them. And it's not just history, but that stuff is happening still today, 2021, on planet Earth. Exile in a foreign land under the thumb of a foreign government is the historical context for Judah in the entire second half of Isaiah. Whereas God was confronting their sin and warning, and it seemed to be Isaiah for 39 chapters, I mean, uh, Assyria for 39 chapters. Now we know from chapter 40 through 66, the next 27 chapters, the major player is Judah in captivity to Babylon. So what would bring comfort to God's people in captivity? Here's your favorite food and your favorite jammies. No. No, what brings comfort, real comfort, in the midst of captivity is an announcement that goes something like this. Your captivity is over. You're free to go home. That's what would bring comfort in captivity, right? Well, that's Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 is the announcement of good news to those in captivity. God promises to deliver you and guarantees his promise with his power. If you wanted to divide Isaiah 40 into two sections, which we are not going to do today, but if you wanted to divide them into two sections, what we see in the beginning is God's promise to deliver, and then in the second half of chapter 40, God's power to deliver. Because God's promise to deliver is guaranteed by his power to deliver. So for Judah in 592 BC living in captivity in Babylon, it was a physical judgment. And it was because of their sin and they knew it. For us, we're in captivity too, friends. But sometimes it doesn't feel like it And sometimes it's really foreign to us. We don't think of life in on planet Earth as in bondage or in captivity because, let's face it, I mean, can life get much better than we have it here and now? By the way, the answer to that is yes, we'll see in heaven. But for us in 2021, our captivity isn't physical, but it is real and it is spiritual. Because we suffer under the curse of sin and death. And Isaiah chapter 40 is written. It's good news to those who feel their captivity. So friends, if you don't feel 
your struggle against sin and death, if you don't feel that warfare and that curse of sin, then Isaiah 40 is not going to make sense to you. It is because it's really only good news to people who understand their sinfulness and understand the, the curse of sin and death. It's really only good news to those of us who, who already feel that sense of sinfulness before a holy God. But for those of you who do feel the curse of sin and suffering in this life, my prayer is that you won't be discouraged and defeated in your everyday struggle, but that you will soar because of the promises of the gospel. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 40 together. I'm not going to read all of this at one time. It is 31 verses, and they are rich, so I want to take them as they come in five different chunks. That's what we see here. I just want to highlight for you this morning five important things that we learn about God's promise to us in Isaiah chapter 40. I just want to highlight five really important notes here. And the first one is in verse 1 and 2. And here's, here's what we learn, that God's promise gives us comfort. God's promise gives us comfort. Read verse 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says our God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I want you to notice the emphasis on comfort Anytime the Bible repeats something, that's the writer's way of highlighting it or putting it in bold or italics or underlining. They didn't have those uh, mechanics back then, and so they used to say, comfort, comfort, or holy, holy, holy. That's the Bible's way of emphasizing this. So here, as we come to the second half of Isaiah, the emphasis is on comfort for God's people, just like in the first half, the, emper- the uh, emphasis was on confronting the sin of God's people. Now that he has confronted their sin, we fast forward 105 years, and before they ever get there, God tells his prophet to proclaim a message to them. And the message goes something like this. Do you see what you've done? Have you learned your lesson, you bunch of miserable wretches? I can't stand you people. I have no idea why I... No. The first two words are a decidedly different tone. God has confronted their sin. And now, what does he say? Chapter 40, verse 1. Isaiah, here's my message for my people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her. 
we see this comforting message. We see this tenderness of God who comes toward those of us who understand our sin. And those of us who understand our sin only do so because God, through his grace, has opened our eyes to our sin and to his holiness and to his way of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the gentle, lowly Lord Jesus Christ, in his tenderness, speaks softly to God's people. And what is the substance of this announcement? It is a triad of good news. Look in verse 2. Three statements of good news. Number one, Judah, your warfare is ended. These are people in captivity. And God's good news to them is your hardship is over. Babylon has conquered you, but now it's over. Imagine if you were a POW in a, in a camp in Vietnam. And you get that announcement that the war's over. Imagine that day, World War II, when victory was declared and the prisoners heard of this victory. And they were no longer, man, that is a message of comfort. And friends, that's what the gospel declares to us. The hardship of living under the curse in the captivity under the sun of sin and death, in the reign of terror of Satan, God says, it's over. Number two, Judah, your iniquity is pardoned. Listen, if you and I were in Babylon in 592, We know why we're there. We know it's because of our unfaithfulness and our wickedness, because we trusted nations instead of God, because we turned to false idols instead of the living God. We know why we're there. We see our sin. And then God comes along with this announcement. Your iniquity that you know and that I know, pardon. Your sin is forgiven. Man, that's awesome. Good news number three. Judah, you have received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins. Double for all of your sins was God's law, what God required for sin. So the thief who stole uh, one thing had to give back Two, that was the penalty for sin, and that was justice. And so here, this is God operating according to his own law, and he says, your sin, what you deserved, has been paid back double. In other words, justice has been satisfied. Is that not the encapsulation of the gospel? Your hardship is over. Your sin is forgiven. Justice has been satisfied. Friends, while we're still living in Babylon under the sun, while we're still here, 
God has already given us the proclamation of the good news that because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, his king, his servant, God has declared that the curse is over, our sin is forgiven, and justice has been satisfied. And and that changes absolutely everything. Number two. In verse three through five, we see that God's promise calls us to prepare. Not only does it give us comfort, but it calls us to do something. It calls us to prepare. Prepare what? Well, let's read verse 3 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground becomes level and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This announcement of the good news that brings comfort to God's people also calls us to prepare. What does it mean to prepare the way of the Lord and to make a highway for our God? This is the exact words there in verse 3 through 5. The imagery is that there in captivity, in Babylon, in the wilderness, by metaphor, that God's people who receive this promise of deliverance prepare for it. And they prepare by making a highway for God to ride in on and for them to walk out on. And so, how do you make a highway for the king? Well, you make all of the rough places plain. You make sure that it goes across the most level ground. So you you uh, bring up the valleys, you put down the hills, and you make a beautiful highway for the king to come. So this imagery is that God is coming to deliver his people, and we believe it. So then while we're still in captivity, we prepare for it. Do you, do you see that? It's not we do this after we're released. This is a hundred years before they're ever even in captivity. And God tells them that you're going to prepare for it while you're in captivity by making a highway for our God. And that through this great deliverance where God comes and his people are delivered that, quote, the glory of God is going to be seen by all flesh. And friends, this was fulfilled by John the Baptist. And we see it in each one of the Gospels who explained the practical application of what it looks like to prepare to be delivered by captivity by a promise from God. Look at Luke chapter 3. 
you could go to any of the Gospels to see this. Luke happens to be the one that is is uh, most vivid and explains more than the rest. Luke chapter 3, please. What does it look like practically to prepare the way of the Lord? Was it just John the Baptist going out and preparing the way for Jesus? No, it was not. That's what a lot of us think. That this was fulfilled by John the Baptist because he was the one who was preparing the way for the Lord by proclaiming the coming of Jesus. Okay, Partially true, but not fully true. The preparation, John says here in chapter 3, look, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, that's our text, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, etc., etc., Verse 7, what does that look like? John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, you bunch of sinners, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, therefore we're okay. John says, because every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, your biological connection to Abraham doesn't save you. You've got to have a spiritual faith in the God of Abraham. And what is the fruit of faith? Verse 10. The crowds asked John, what then shall we do? And he answered them, give. Tax collectors said, what are we supposed to do? John said, stop stealing. Roman soldiers said, what are we supposed to do? He said, stop extorting from people and be content with your wages. In other words, we prepare to be delivered by God, we prepare by repenting of our sin and obeying God. Repentance and obedience. We turn away from the sinful lifestyles that we know is anti-God and we turn back to the God who says he will save us. And we trust him by obeying him. Friends, that's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that's, that the curse is over. Your sins can be forgiven. And what was that last one? Justice has been satisfied. That's the good news of the gospel. What's the response? We prepare our own heart by repenting of sin and obeying God. So let me just stop and ask you the question, have you ever actually responded to the gospel? Or 
Maybe do you find yourself in the wilderness listening to preaching a lot, hearing God's word a lot on your commute, in your car, coming to church, reading it in your devotions. You hear God's word a lot, but you don't actually repent and believe you. Nothing changes in your heart and in your life. God's promise calls us to prepare. It calls for the response of repentance and faith. Number three. Look at verse six through eight, and we find out that God's promise that brings comfort and calls for preparation is trustworthy. God's promise is trustworthy. We can count on it. Look at verse 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The emphasis here is that there is a time and a season and a beauty to everything that's under the sun, but everything under the sun fades. Nothing is forever. It all fades except for God and his promises. God and his word never fade. You can bank on it. When God promises that he will deliver you from captivity, you can know it is a sure and certain promise. This will come to pass. Why? Because everything else fades and withers except God and his word. So Christian, when God makes a promise to deliver you from your sin, and when God promises, I will deliver you from death by giving you eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ, you can count on it. And you can be sure that nothing Nothing on earth, nothing of those fading things, even even fading glory of Babylon and Assyria, nothing on earth can keep God from keeping his promises. Christian, that means that when God makes his promise to save you from your sin, not even the superpower of your sin and unfaithfulness can stop him from doing it. When Peter quotes this scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. He adds this commentary before it and after it. He says, this imperishable, living, and abiding word of God is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you, in which you stand, that has promised you eternal life and an inheritance that never fades away. 
1 Peter chapter 1. God's promise is a comfort to us. Calls us to prepare by repentance and obedience and is trustworthy. And that brings us to the second half of this in point number four. God's promise is guaranteed by God's power. You see, if you put yourself into the situation of Judah in captivity in Babylon, we could be wondering the same things that they're wondering. Is this ever going to end? Sweatshops, forced labor, Day after day after day after year after year after decade after decade. Is it ever going to end? God said he's going to save us, but is he? Can he? Can God really deliver us from this superpower? How could he possibly do that? God's promise is guaranteed by God's power, verses 9 through 26. Isaiah 40 makes seven statements about the power of God, and they're fantastic. Look in verse 9 through 11. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, Herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Verse 9 through 11, Behold, your God is coming. He's coming to deliver you. It is going to happen. And I love how he says this all throughout. It it just keeps being an announcement and a proclamation. Have you noticed that about four different times now in every one of these sections? There's shout it out, cry out, tell my people, comfort my people. Look how he describes it here. God is so emphatic about this that he basically says there in verse 9, get as high as you can, shout as loud as you can, don't be shy about this, say to all my people, Just watch your God. Behold, your God. Watch his power on display as he keeps his promise to you. Verse 10, he's going to come to you and deliver you with his power. Verse 10b, he will come deliver you according to his justice. And isn't that exactly what God did on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? God did not just wapo zappo the curse away. God dealt with it according to his principles of justice so that he might be just 
and the justifier of of all of those who come to Jesus Christ. He sacrificed his own son, the innocent, on behalf of the guilty. So that there's the great trade of the gospel. Justification. I give Jesus my sin. And he buries it and puts it to death. And then he gives me back my uh, his righteousness. And I stand clothed in the righteousness. And the justice of God is satisfied. And God remains just. And the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus. Amazing. Not only does he come with power and according to justice, but look at verse 11, he will come to deliver you because of his tender love, because of his covenant with you, where God says, you are my people and I'm your God, and God will take care of us, just like a shepherd takes care of his sheep. And listen, friends, So often, I don't feel the love of God. And it's my fault. Because I assume that God is as upset and disappointed with me as I am. I forget that God is full of grace and full of mercy and overflowing with loving kindness so that he treats me like a father treats his children, and that my sin was extinguished in Christ, and now God has nothing but love and grace for those of us who are in Christ. So when I see God tending his flock like a shepherd, I assume that he's going, yeah, you too, Tim. Come on, I made a commitment to you. And he just does it out of obligation. Yeah, I know. Your mom and dad prayed for you. I saved you by my grace and you responded to it. Now I'm committed to you, but come on. Oh, man. Now we've been adopted as sons. Not as redheaded stepchildren. Sorry, those of you who are redheads. This is not obligatory. It's not frustrating. So Judah, Christian, do you need proof that your God is powerful enough to keep his promise to actually save you from the massive amount of your sin and unfaithfulness? Do you need proof that your God is big enough, real enough, to exist for all of eternity and take you to be with him in a real paradise, a new heaven and new earth? Do you need proof that all of this stuff, even though your friends and family might scoff at it, all of this stuff is real and God is powerful enough to keep his promise to you? Do you need proof? Verse 12 through 26. Behold, your God transcends everything. All creation, all wisdom, all nations, all gods, all rulers, 
all of the things that are the most enormous things that you can imagine. God transcends all of them. The promises of God are guaranteed by the person and the power of your God. Behold your God in verse 12 through 26. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has done that? God has and no one else. See, God measures what is immeasurable to us. The emphasis here in verse 12 is on his enormity, which means if our God is able to measure the universe, he can weigh our situation and determine precisely how to accomplish his will and deliver us through it. Behold, your God transcends all creation. Verse 13 and 14. Behold, your God transcends all human wisdom. Verse 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows the Lord his counsel? Whom did the Lord consult? And who made the Lord understand. Who taught the Lord the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Answer? No one. Our God understands what is unknowable to us. The emphasis here is on his wisdom, which means our God understands how to deliver us from our sin and doesn't need our ideas of how or when to do it. You can trust him. Verse 15 through 17. Behold, your God not only transcends creation and human wisdom, but your God transcends all nations. Verse 15. Behold, the nations... Seven, eight billion people on planet Earth today. Too many to even count. Behold, the nations, like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Your God transcends all the nations. Your God is more valuable than what seems inexhaustible to us. When we look at the nations, it seems like there are limitless numbers of people. When we look at Lebanon and all the all the uh, wood that's there, we would think that that would suffice for everything. When we think about all of the beasts on earth, 
And God's like, all of it is nothing. God's wealth, his substance surpasses all of it. Which means our God has taken account of our situation. And not only does he have the desire to deliver us from it, but he has the resources to do it. Verse 18 and 20. 18 through 20. Behold, your God transcends all little g gods. Make sure you put it with a little g in your notes, would you? Because that's what it says here. Read verse 18 through 20. Your God, not like them. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. But not your God. Our God is the God of the gods we make. This is an emphasis on his deity, which means that our God made us. We didn't make him. Therefore, he has the incomparable power to accomplish his will. God will keep his promises. His power guarantees it. Verse 21. Verse 21 through 24. Behold, your God transcends all rulers like Sennacherib. Or like Nebuchadnezzar. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. And spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when he, the Lord, blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. You think Babylon and Assyria are a superpower? They're nothing God blows them away like stubble. He's sovereign over those who are sovereign over us. Which means that if our God raises up and puts down the rulers of the earth, like the king of Babylon or the prince of darkness, they're nothing to him. He can deliver you from every one of them. That's our God. Behold, your God. Finally, verse 25 through 26. Behold, your God transcends all, and he seems to end where he started, creation. Verse 25. To whom then will you compare me, says the Lord? You see how he got personal? It's like he stopped translating or proclaiming through his prophet, but now he says me. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, higher, higher. 
Who created these? He's speaking of the stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. God names what we can't even number. He didn't just create them and fling them out there. He sustains them and names them and makes sure that not one is missing. That's a big God, friends. That's a God who can keep his promise to deliver you from sin and death and the curse. And so finally, I make our fifth note. God's promise enables us to do something. This comforting, trustworthy promise that is guaranteed by God's power. God is coming to deliver us. It enables us to do something. What does it enable us to do? One word that has at least three results. Let's read about it in verse 27 through 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. You can see that they're down, they're discouraged, they're defeated. They're in captivity. They've been there a long time. They feel forsaken and abandoned by God. They know they deserve this. My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary His understanding is unsearchable. That's a really good summation of what just came before it. Verse 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The promise of God that is guaranteed by the power of God enables us to do one thing. Wait. It enables us to wait. See, the promise isn't realized yet. It's still a promise. That's why a lot of people think that we're fools for believing it. Because you can't touch and feel the kingdom yet. It's not been realized physically. You've never seen Jesus Christ. 
You've never seen God. It's all still faith and hope and promise. But the promise of God, guaranteed by the enormous power of God, enables us to wait and wait without being discouraged and defeated, without being faint and weak and weary. So when we wait on the Lord, what does that look like? It looks like believing that God has made a promise and is powerful enough to keep that promise. What does that do? That causes us to soar like eagles. Run like Courtney and walk without stopping and fainting. Christian, your captivity to sin and death is over. Soar in that freedom. It really is over. We're still here. We're still feeling it. We still struggle against sin and death every day. But ultimately, it is finished, Jesus said. Soar in that freedom. Christian, your sin is forgiven. It is buried in the depths of the deepest sea. It is removed from you as far as the east is from the west. God says, I will never remember it again. Your sin is forgiven. Run in that forgiveness. Christian. Justice has been satisfied. You will never feel one ounce, not one drop of the wrath of God for your sin. Justice has been satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now go walk in his righteousness. Man, Isaiah 40 is a message of comfort for those of us who feel the curse of our sin and death. Praise God for the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for Isaiah 40, the gospel that comforts the afflicted by our sin. I pray that every day You would not only make us aware of our sin, but you would go beyond so that we can soar and run and walk in righteousness because you make us aware and remind us of the gospel promise to deliver us from it. Oh God, make us be people who do not live in defeat and discouragement, but fill us with joy because of your promise and your power to keep your promise. Do that for your glory in us and through us. In the name of Jesus, amen.